So welcome to episode 17 of Political OD. Here in Northern Ireland, we'll just uh, quickly touch on uh, the uh, Northern Ireland Audit Report, another report of more uh, largesse uh, by government. I certainly questioned as to whether it was value for money, public money, and also how basically an industry gamed uh, the, the funding available. Uh, and we're talking about wind farms there where they uh, deliberately set uh, wind turbines at a lower level and put up more of them because that actually attracted more money from what I could read uh, from uh, that report. You were talking about Groundhog Day, David, and um, yes, this has got that whiff of RHI about it because we're talking about kind of perverse incentives not to do what the scheme intended, but to kind of squeeze money out of it. You know, that this would be a massive story, I think, at any other time, other than the fact that we've got COVID and, and the Northern Ireland sea border and so on, uh, dominating the attention, but also the fact that this money was was coming from Westminster and actually the intention of, this, of, uh, of the scheme, the way that it's set up, seemed shamelessly to be to squeeze every bit of money that we could out of the treasury. So. The information though isn't new, it's simply that the audit office has yeah. put this out. I mean, I remember contacting a journalist two years ago and pointing out the uh, perverse incentives uh, to set up a uh, wind turbine uh, to any investor uh, who uh, could get planning permission. But there was no interest in, in that, even in, in the middle of our And I think to some extent, the reason why we're not seeing the outrage on the wind farm or on the renew this renewable energy uh, scheme is because the money largely is not coming out of the budget uh, from Stormont. Uh, it's actually coming out of our pockets in terms of our electricity bills, uh, in terms of a little money there, but much more it's coming through charge, if you like, in the electricity bills of the rest of the UK. Well, that's right. And the scandal with RHI in the end, from the perspective of the Northern Ireland media, uh, was the fact that actually civil servants had got it wrong and that the money wasn't coming directly from the treasure. It was coming from the Northern Ireland budget. And that is what most people were exercised about. But there was still that mentality that um, if there is an opportunity to get money out of London, then we should absolutely max it out, whatever the circumstances. So as from a unionist perspective, from a, a sort of a UK unionist perspective, that was what I found most shocking about that scheme. And, you know, that that criticism could be levelled at this scheme too. But I think we both agreed that the only outrage in real terms uh, in RHI was that it was going to undermine the budget at Stormont. Uh, and yeah. The, the, the underlying principle of taking money from Westminster or, or, or from somewhere else and, and putting it into uh, Northern Ireland is, is fine. And I think that's why we're not seeing the big uh, outrage over the uh, wind farms. You can abuse um, Westminster schemes and see them as, a, as a, just a source of getting money into the Northern Ireland economy, whether, they, whether they're actually fitting the purpose that they're supposed to be fitting or not. But, you know, if it comes from the Northern Ireland budget, then that's an entirely different matter. Uh, let's, um, let's move on briefly, perhaps, to the discussion over the uh, front stop uh, that, uh, or the Northern Ireland Protocol, which sort of rolls on without any 
greater clarity because obviously until we know where the negotiations between London and Brussels end up, we won't know exactly how the protocol will pan out. I thought it was uh, amusing that people who had very firmly demanded the backstop as essential are now complaining about the cost of what we'll use for this podcast as the front stop, because it would seem that in terms of, if you look at those two two positions, it's only a matter of timing. And indeed, the backstop um, potentially uh, would have created far greater harm, leaving Northern Ireland outside uh, its biggest single market and outside the customs union of the United Kingdom. It's an amazing thing. And um, it seems that um, some people who insisted that we couldn't have any sort of infrastructure or any kind of checks on the island of Ireland are now um, facing the reality of what having an Irish sea border means. But as you say, every aspect of the Northern Ireland Protocol could have come about uh, under the backstop if the UK government had decided to move away from single market regulations and the kind of single customs area that was uh, mooted under Theresa May's plan. She saw the backstop, of course, as a means of keeping the whole of the UK tied into the EU's customs union and the single market. But there was by no means any guarantee that uh, you know governments from then on would, would see things in the same way. And indeed, the ability to move away from the EU's way of doing things was written into that agreement. And at that point, similar barriers between Northern Ireland and, and Great Britain would have arisen. Added to that, we would have been outside the, the, the UK's customs union um, officially. So, I, I mean, I, I wrote at one point that it was the difference between a, a swift kick in the balls from Boris Johnson or a long lingering kick in the teeth from Theresa May. And if you think that the backstop didn't create the same, the same or similar problems um, to the Northern Ireland Protocol, quite frankly, you didn't understand what was in it. Well, I think there was such a push to create special status for Northern Ireland. No one really looked at the consequences uh, of what that would actually mean in economic terms. It was all in political terms. And I think that was the uh, great failure uh, of those people engaged in that particular line of, of discussion. Let's talk about this, but let's not talk about economic consequences because it's much more having the political project in place. Well, there's always been this kind of sniffy idea that um, the DUP or Brexiteers, it's your problem, so you should own it, and we have nothing to do with this. But, you know, we've got to call out the people who for four years after the referendum were trying to undermine that result and trying to make sure that Northern Ireland's links to both the EU, our, our, our kind of position with, within the EU almost that was going to be saved and that our links to Dublin were prioritised over our links to London because we're seeing the economic, we're beginning to see how the economic consequences of that emphasis is, is going to work out for them. Those who were arguing that this was the best of both worlds are now desperately calling out the, the damage that this might now do. So it's clearly not the best of both worlds. There's clearly a fundamental problem with the protocol. 
Westminster government has been right to bring in the Internal Market Bill and to uh, put in place a control on potential damage in the future. Uh, and I think they've had to do that because they realised that the protocol, as with the backstop, was a negotiating tactic above all else by the EU. Um, and that they have basically sent a signal to the EU that they will not play that game. And now we're getting down to the kind of critical stages of the trade negotiations. Yeah. And, um, you know, the same, the same dynamics, the same uh, intractability is beginning to play out there out there too, you know, uh, the, 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 the fishing debate, Britain is leaving the European Union, but at some level that doesn't seem to have um, dawned on the EU negotiators yet. They no. think that we can uh, carry on uh, as if we didn't have control of our fishing waters. I think we'll, we'll just move on from, from that point, taking the link of politicians pursuing a political goal or a, a policy decision in the absence of really having fully thought through or fully uh, examined the consequences. Uh, and I want to just use as an example of that, Diane Dodds yesterday uh, speaking to a hotel association, um, saying that having sat in the executive on uh, Tuesday night and made decisions in relation to incoming restrictions, told this uh, the, the hotels that I am urgently engaging with executive colleagues to clarify the specifics of these new restrictions and the potential impact on hotels before they come into effect. Would you not have evaluated the consequences of the restrictions and how to deal with any factors or things that might need to be mitigated? Would you not have done that before making a decision on a policy that was going to fundamentally affect uh, that sector if you are the minister in charge? I mean, I, I find that somewhat alarming. And to some extent, I also have a sense that perhaps she's not the only minister in that regard. Yes. Well, I think that um, it, what it probably points to is the fact that we have an executive that doesn't work together, that doesn't assume collective responsibility for the decisions that it makes. And that Diane Dodds was probably bounced into a set of restrictions uh, with which she didn't agree. So yes, she should have been uh, making those preparations. Yes, she should have been ahead of the uh, ahead of the game, but in her defense, and I, I don't, <laughs> you know, particularly have any um, any reason to defend her, but I, I don't suppose that, um, that, that she was behind those, uh, the, those restrictions that were announced on Tuesday night in the same way as, as some other executive um, ministers were. And I mean, this is what we have where we go in, we've got a particular policy um, quagmire to work through. Everybody goes in, thrashes out this sort of compromise from their own, um, from their own perspectives and from their own positions and, and you know, we have to live with the consequences. It's not proper governance. It's not proper decision making. We do in this country has to be um, a consequence of, of deal making between the DUP and Sinn Féin ultimately. Well, I think there's just two two issues that I think have come out of those who are going to be uh, directly affected. I mean, first of all, it's important to to uh, quote Simon Hamilton, 
uh, on behalf of the Belfast Chamber of Commerce, who said this is a, an economy breaker, not a circuit breaker. So quite clearly, the justification hasn't, and the, and, uh, the uh, wider consideration hasn't been communicated to the uh, commercial sector. Um, and also then Bill Woosley, who is obviously a, a significant investor in the uh, hospitality sector, um, who simply says there is no scientific evidence to justify uh, the locking down of that sector. You know, I imagine because it just seems that way from, from uh, news reports and social media feeds, the hospitality sector is basically never away from the door of Stormont. So if they have not seen any evidence or, again, any justification, you have to wonder exactly what this decision is being based on. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're told always that the decisions are taken in, in line with this weird phrase, the science, as if there's one definitive scientific explanation for any of these things anyway. I think we're probably a bit sceptical about that. This should have been a matter um, for all kinds of experts. We're told about you know, the, 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 the sort of chief medical officer's advice and all this kind of thing. It's not just a medical issue. It's particularly not just a, a COVID medical issue because there's all sorts of kind of moving parts there. It's an economic issue. It's an ethical issue. It's uh, an issue of liberties. And, and so the idea that this decision was taken on, on the basis of, of science, if if that was the case, it, it's not science that they're confident enough to present to the public or present to uh, lobbying groups like uh, like the hospitality. When we talk about science, I, I think the worrying aspect at the moment is that the, the science is almost like the headline number rather than actual science. And, and I think clearly, as I've quoted already, there are many people who do not, they, they haven't been presented any science that provides justification for them. And, you know, one thing certainly can be observed is is a headline number is used, whether that's a number of uh, people in ICU, whether it's the number of positive cases in a day, whether it's suddenly the, the number of inpatients, whether that's uh, rising or whatever. Uh, and, and these statements are, are clearly made to alarm. Um, but in business, you know, I would never look at a set of figures and say, right, on that set of figures, we'll make this decision. You would need to be able to interrogate those figures, understand the meaning of the, fi of the figures. That's information. That information then has to be put into the pot with all the other information you're coming in from all the different departments, you know, all the different influences to get to a considered decision that is based on all the available evidence in the big sense and that just doesn't seem to be happening well we're we're yes we're presented with the raw data but we're presented with very little analysis or context or you know insights that um that, that might come out of that um so i mean you, you i think you've been highlighting on twitter the issue of inpatients which are rising higher than than they should be if it, if you were just taking into account admissions so and I, I think if you were if you were sort of to set out an equation for what should be happening i took a particular look at this because uh, a journalist was used the term admissions rather than inpatients mm -hmm. suggesting that the total number of of inpatients had actually been the total number of admissions that day and it was just wrong 
but more particularly when you when you do look at the the inpatient rate from the NISRA figures, uh, from the official figures, you you can spot that sometimes those numbers are increased because all of a sudden, a week ago, there is another person added to the number for that day a week ago. Well, that's important. You know, there's no test taking a week to come through. Honestly, you would need to have time to sit down in the day and actually go through these numbers or have having started, it's very difficult to go back and look at these numbers uh, if you don't have the time. And I've got, a, I've got work to do, so I haven't really got that, that level of time. But you can quite clearly see that the, the uh, admissions are not commensurate with the level of increase in inpatients on, on, a, on a day that is being reported. So there's something happening. I, I listened to, uh, I think it was Good Morning Ulster this morning, where there was a Dr. Kelly from, from Alton Gelvin um, who give the first indication that there are indeed infections happening within the hospital estate uh, with patients who are in hospital for other reasons. And again, this comes back to the, are you in hospital because you're admitted because of COVID? Or are you suddenly uh, registered as an inpatient with COVID? having perhaps uh, picked that up while in hospital. Not saying that it's been picked up because of the, the, cares, uh, the care workers. It might be visitors, it might be something else. Uh, and we can look at it alongside that. There's also obviously the, the huge increase in, in, uh, in care home outbreaks. There's something that needs to be addressed. And yes, it's a difficult decision to go back perhaps to the situation where you have no visitors, but at least you're starting to put in control measures that you know work. The, the, the decision the other night is a big, broad blunderbuss without actually looking at things already that can be done. Again, household, inf and it's not because it's families, it's because you're in a closed indoor environment. And as we come into winter, with the windows shut because it's cold and you don't want to let the heating out the windows, um, that's going to become a bigger risk. That's just a fact because you know you haven't got someone cooking dinner with a face mask on uh, like you would in a restaurant you haven't got someone setting down a plate in front of you at the table wearing a visor you've got to take all that into account rather than simply saying right we're going to put everybody in the house which sounds to me like you're going to put everybody into exactly the environment that um, is going to be uh, as risky as anywhere else uh, over the coming months. And we have to try and understand the figures and understand the disease as well as just making decisions based on on raw data. And I mean, you're talking about infections possibly breaking out in hospitals and care homes. And that's uh, what we're doing chiefly uh, in, in this round of restrictions. In this lockdown, we're calling it a, a circuit breaker, but it's a, a lockdown. We're, we're doing things to inhibit community transmission, or at least that's the aim anyway. Whereas, I mean, you're, you're talking about things which are essentially, I suppose, an infection control issue, if you were yeah. uh, speaking in the, in the language of the health profession. So we've got to become a little braver, a little bit less political, and a, a little bit more circumspect in terms of drilling down into these things. In terms of being honest with each other about what the real problems are. 
and, and trying to understand what's going on and what will make a difference. Because otherwise, I mean, I, you, you said about uh, listening to, to Dr. Kelly on, on, on Good Morning Ulster this morning. I, I missed that, but I, I heard Ian Young, the, the chief, um, chief scientific officer, he's not the chief medical officer, being asked really about this current arrangement and how long this can go on. And I mean, he admitted that it's not sustainable to keep having lockdowns. He, he said that after this lockdown, we would have to learn to live with the disease. Now, we've, we've been saying that we had to learn to live with the disease, that it wasn't going away. We had to be thinking about those things for months. So how many times are we going to do this if it's not sustainable before we start to get serious about thinking, how can we live with this? How can we protect the vulnerable, but keep daily life going on much as we've experienced it uh, for most of our lives? Boris Johnson in his, in his uh, conference speech said that we couldn't go back to normality. Well, I say get stuffed, Boris. We want to go back to normality. And I know what he's saying. He's, he's sort of saying we can do things better and we can, we can kind of make this into a new start and everything else. But we want to travel across the world. We want to have vibrant cities. Yeah. We don't want to live our, our lives carring behind a computer screen. And we've got to get on with finding a way to get back to doing those things rather than than, than simply uh, accepting this new ideology that's come into place, this lockdown ideology. Sam McBride uh, suggested that in March, to a large extent, because it, there was so much unknown, first of all, there was broad acceptance of lockdown because it was just, there wasn't anything else because nobody knew any there could be any alternative. Um, but also it was a fairly simple message, which I think is hand space distance or whatever combination of, of three catchy, catchy words was used. Uh, you know, that was a simple message as well. Uh, and everybody did the same, uh, bar Sinn Féin. Now, the, the, the graphic that was sent out last night from the executive, I think it had about 18 things you could look at in terms of, of restrictions, little circles with little icons and saying this, this and this. And then underneath it, uh, five or six other little things to remember in terms of personal responsibility. It, it's a much more complex issue. And I think in terms of uh, undermining the message, uh, we saw... Uh, four party political leaders go down to Dublin for a meeting uh, with the foreign minister and just simply not seeing anything wrong with that. Uh, you know, and I know they pointed to Sammy Wilson uh, riding the tube train uh, in London without uh, a mask, but at least Sammy, whether he meant it or not, but at least Sammy apologised for that. Fine. But those four leaders simply did not see anything wrong with going to Dublin. And if we put that in context, I mean, you and I have been on this podcast uh, since March using Zoom. Uh, now, I could argue that it would be much easier for me to come to your house or you'd come to my house uh, and we could sit across the table, perhaps socially distanced, but it would be a much more convivial environment for that conversation. But it's not a necessary journey because Zoom works just as well. I cannot think of anything that those four leaders and Simon Coveney, because they all agree with each other anyway, I do not understand one single point of important information that has come out of that meeting that could not have been communicated 
via a Zoom call? There's absolutely nothing, no justification for it at all. And it was just a photo opportunity, an opportunity to get in the papers. And let's remember what their message was as well. We were talking about political parties actively campaigning to make sure that barriers were put in the way of, of Northern Ireland businesses that want to do business between Great Britain uh, and, and here. And, um, you know, the, these are parties that could be asking for the rules to be implemented with uh, sympathy on, on both sides. They're not doing that. Of course, that's a separate issue. The fact that what they're actually campaigning for is disgraceful, absolutely disgraceful. It's also a terrible example to people when it comes to the COVID regulations that these people always think what they're up to is more important than the rest of us. And the, but I think, yeah, I think that's exactly the point, though, in, in that they, they simply have seen no reason to apologise. But their, their justification, they don't need to apologise for attending a meeting, just like Michelle O'Neill refuses to apologise for attending the Bobby Story funeral, because she will never uh, do that, apparently. But it's just this, you know, yeah, these rules, they're all for you. But, you know, if we think it's more important to do what we think, then we'll go do it. And that does not provide an example to the general public. Uh, it is, in fact, entirely undermining of the message of use your common sense, because common sense would have told those four to use Zoom. They don't do apologies. And, I mean, it's a, sim it's a similar mentality to um, Labour MPs who turned up at Black Lives Matter protests whenever those blew up at, uh, at the start and, and again restrictions were in place at that time but this was so important uh, that they had to they had to go about uh, the doing their own thing so you know it, it's it's a pathology in itself that kind of uh, thinking. Well these new restrictions are going to come in on Saturday uh, whatever they'll mean uh, uh, because I don't think the politicians really know what they mean at the moment I don't think they have well, a plan to get us out the other side either, which I think no. is the more concerning aspect. The way I see it, David, is either the numbers will come down and that will be seen as a vindication of these tactics, whether it's actually had an impact on the numbers or not, or if they, you know, maybe they were just levelling off and going down anyway, or else they won't go down and then that'll be used to justify more restrictions and a longer lockdown. So we can't win either way, can we? Well, as I say, out of the 3,000 beds we're looking at, uh, at, at the, uh, over the past few weeks, couple of weeks, we, we've had, I think the highest number has been around 190 or so. Uh, and that seems to be being the highest. It's largely stabilising between, you know, maybe 30, you know, a range of maybe 150 to 190 uh, uh, over the past two weeks. So, you know, that, that doesn't seem alarming. The, the five-day doubling rate um, has uh, stabilised. Um, again, it's not it's not in the best of health, but at least it's stabilising. The the numbers that are being given are are given in a way that is alarming. But I think people need to be properly informed, and I don't think that's been done. I don't think the businesses that are being impacted are being uh, informed about why it's their sectors or why this is happening. And I don't think the public is being really informed either. Most of all, uh, to see a plan going forward. And I don't think there is one. No, absolutely not.
let's leave it at that point. I'm not exactly a happy point to leave it on, uh, but uh, I think it's a good point to stop. And uh, we'll catch up in a couple of weeks mid-breaker and see uh, where we all are. Absolutely. Look forward. All right.